0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20. The reason why we're looking at verses 6 through 20 today is because we finished with verse 5 last week. It's one of the uh, blessings of uh, preaching through the Bible in an expository way, is I never have to wonder or kind of figure out where we're going to be, because it's always wherever we left off the last time. Uh, But one of the challenges with that is that we have to cover everything that's in God's Word. And today, we've got some difficult things to talk about. Today, we have some hard things to hear and some hard things to preach. So we need God's help. So let's read His Word and then let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we read and try to understand today. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6, John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it. And as we come to a particularly difficult passage this morning, we pray, even as we pray every week, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, opening our eyes and helping us to see what we need to see from this portion of your word. I pray, Father, that every single one of us, our hearts would be open and ready to receive your word. That your spirit would mold us and form us and shape us by it. So that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've all seen the situation. Perhaps you even participate in it from time to time. It goes something like this. It maybe happens at the mall or at a restaurant. Or at a store or maybe at the movie theater. You're there and you see... Uh, a mother or father with uh, one of their little children, little Johnny or little Susie, and little Johnny or little Susie is acting up, and the mother or the father's had enough, and so they say, Johnny, Susie, stop it. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. And then nothing happens. And the parent goes on doing what they're doing and the child keeps disobeying or whatever it is that they're doing to cause commotion. And after a while, the the parent gets fed up again. And so they say, now, Johnny or Susie, now I mean it. I'm going to count to five. One, two, three. You've seen the story. You've seen the situation. Perhaps it's all too familiar to you and how you have responded to your own children. Uh, what's going on in those moments? The, the parent is warning the child. I'm warning you, stop doing what you're doing. Live the way you're supposed to live. And if you don't, judgment is coming. Some kind of consequence will come as a result of you not listening and obeying. Now, maybe that's how some people choose to run their households either intentionally or not, by giving the warnings and not following up with the judgments. But Revelation 14 makes very clear to us this morning that that is not how the sovereign God rules His universe. God demonstrates His loving patience by giving people clear and regular warnings. From the Garden of Eden until today... And until Jesus comes again for his second advent, the call that he gives is clear and compelling. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your knee in humble, loving obedience to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or face the justice and the judgment of a holy God all by yourself. Revelation also makes clear that this period of warning that God gives to people is not forever. In fact, it's actually short as we've read in other parts of Revelation. Jesus is going to return someday in the future. But the good news is that it's not too late at this point... To listen, to heed the call, and to bow your knee in submission and loving obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation 14 also gives us this picture of God's patient and steadfast love that if you are in Christ this morning is meant to fill you with all kinds of hope. And so it's those three things that I want us to look at what Revelation 14 says about the warning, about the judgment and about the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, before we jump in and and look at those three things in Revelation 14, let me make just a quick comment about the context of time here in Revelation 14. We if you've been with us through our study thus far, we've talked about how throughout Revelation, John is receiving this revelation from Jesus Christ Uh, Through the Holy Spirit to an angel that is then giving it to John in the first century AD. And as John gets this vision, some of the details of what he is told are things that have happened in the past to the first century people. They're they're talking about uh, the arrival of Jesus and his first advent, his incarnation. And some of the vision that John gets in Revelation is talking about things that are happening in the first century as the people who are receiving it and reading it are living. And some of the vision that John receives are about things that are to happen in the near future for the people that were living in the first century. And then, of course, some of what John receives is a vision about what's to happen at the very end of time, the future for us as well. All of those time frames are represented in the book of Revelation. And as we come to Revelation 14, there are multiple time periods that are being described here. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 5, and we were looking at a period of time at the very end of history. God, uh, Jesus Christ, had returned for the second coming and Uh, God's people had been vindicated through the righteousness of Jesus. And in the first five verses of Revelation 14, we get this picture of what happens at the very end of all time as God's people are once again with God face to face in heaven. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, the end of our chapter, is going to be describing what happens when Jesus comes back for his second coming. And in between those two is verses 6 through 13 that is going to be telling us about the warnings that are given to God's people and to all people between the Advents, between the first time that Jesus comes and the second time that Jesus comes. There are very hard things for us to hear today and we can't sugarcoat it. And yet, it's God's Word, it's true, and it's given for a good purpose. That those who are here today would hear it, that we would wake up, that we would be warned, and that if you're a Christian this morning, that you'd be filled with all hope. So let's look and see what we read about these three things, warning, judgment, and hope. First of all, the warning. Verses 6 through 11, we get uh, this sense of warning. Now again, we have to remind ourselves of the time frame. Verses 6 through 11 is talking about the time frame between when Jesus came the first time, His incarnation, and when Jesus will come a second time, his, his second coming, his, his second advent. And, and uh, to give us a sense of the warnings that go out from God about how we are to be living as his people. He gives us this, this picture of these three angels in verses 6 through 11 who bring three warnings. And, and it's to symbolize the warnings of God that go out. To all people between the advent, between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. So these warnings that we get in verses 6 and through 11 were warnings for the people in the first century. They are warnings for us today, and they are warning for all people until Jesus comes back again. And what are the warnings that are given? The first one's in verses 6 and 7. It's the warning against indifference. There we read that, Uh, John saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, The image that came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week is perhaps you've been on the beach at some point or at a park and you look up and there's an airplane flying and behind it there's a banner with some restaurant slogan or some uh, piece of information that somebody wants you to have. And I kind of have that vision here, that picture here as we see this, an angel flying above... Directly overhead with a banner and the banner is what the banner is the eternal gospel. Isn't that an interesting way of talking about it? The eternal gospel. How is the gospel eternal? Well, it's eternal because it is from before the foundation of the world. It is God's holy plan from before the foundation of the world. It's also eternal because there are eternal blessings for those who believe And it's also eternal because it will be the subject of eternal praises for those who are in heaven. This is the message of this first angel. It's proclaimed to all people. We read at the end of verse six to every nation and tribe and language and people. And the call is to believe the gospel and to respond with worship and glory to God who is the God of all creation. That's what it says in verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In other words, what we're being told here is the warning is against spiritual indifference. Decide this day whom you will serve. The Lord God Almighty Himself Or as we've read in previous chapters, the red dragon who is Satan and his beasts. Simply saying that you're a Christian is not enough. Your life must prove that that is what your profession of faith is. God's grace and the gospel should and must move us to fear the Lord, to worship the Lord and to glorify the Lord in all of our life. Stephanie and I have a family member who... At one point in their life said, well, I went to church the first 20 years of my life and I'm going to go to church the last 20 years of my life. Now, how that person knew what the last 20 years of their life would be, I don't know. But the essence of what that person was saying is this. I started my life by being serious about God and I'll end my life by being serious by God, about God. But in between, it doesn't really matter. I can live however I want. And the angel here is saying that that's spiritual indifference. And there's a warning call to any that would live their life that way. To make a profession of your faith in Christ, to believe the gospel, is to worship the Lord. It is to glorify the Lord. It is to fear the Lord. This is the first warning. The second warning we get in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great.'" She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, immorality. Now, who is the angel talking about? Who is this Babylon the great? Well, as we talked about earlier in the service throughout the Bible, the term Babylon is used to represent anyone and anything that's in opposition to God. We read about the Tower of Babel that was placed in the area that would eventually be called Babylon We also know about the country of Babylon, the nation of Babylon and its ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, who were used by God to bring Israel into exile. Babylon is a term in Revelation. It's a term in the rest of Scripture that could refer to any kingdom or world system that opposes God and his people. In the first century, in John's day, it was the Roman Empire. And it's characterized by setting oneself up as king and lord and glorifying self rather than making the name of the Lord great. And particularly here in verse 8, Babylon is characterized by self-indulgence, sensuality and sexual immorality. Here's the warning of the second angel. Don't be seduced by the sensual sexual power of those who oppose God. Because her destruction is so certain, her destruction is so sure that the angel is able to speak of it in the past tense. She is defeated. She has been destroyed. This is the second warning. The first is spiritual indifference. The second, sexual immorality. Immorality of any kind. The third comes in verses 9 and 10 with the third angel. Another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his, of his anger anyone who worships the false beast, anyone who receives the mark of the beast. Now, we've talked about that in recent weeks. It's not talking about a literal mark on your forehead or on your hand. It's a figurative way of speaking about being identified with the beast, with evil, with Satan himself, being owned by and following the beast. And the angel warns us clearly, Anybody that would put anything as being more important than God himself, that would give their allegiance and their loyalty to anything more than the one true God, it only leads to one conclusion. And that is drinking the wine of God's wrath. He's talking about idolatry. This is the third warning. Not just worshiping physical idols of wood or metal, but worshiping anything that would capture our hearts and imaginations and our allegiances more than the Lord God Almighty. And this third angel not only tells us about this third warning of idolatry, he also gives us a picture of what happens if these warnings go unheeded. We see that in verses 10 and 11. We get a description of what happens if we don't listen to the warnings. He will drink from the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's a vivid picture. Drinking the wine of God's wrath that's been poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Those who would not heed and listen and obey these warnings, we are told, will be tormented. And the Greek word that is used there means to be tossed and agitated by waves. But this is not a fun day at the beach. The waves that are described are waves of fire and sulfur. We're told that the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, that there will never be rest, not day nor night, eternal torment, not temporary. We're getting the picture of something that is dreadful, something that is horrible, dreadful and horrible suffering that goes on without relief and without mercy. And somehow it even involves an active apprehension of the holiness and the glory of the Lamb as we see at the end of verse 10. This is the warning that God sends out between the Advents, between the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His return. It's given to all, even those within the church, that we would guard against indifference and immorality and idolatry or suffer the resulting destruction that comes. And if that warning isn't enough to get our attention this morning, if that warning isn't enough to grab you and to make you pay attention, To cause you to put your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're also given the judgment that comes as a result. That comes in verses 14 through 20. Now the time, shape, time shift, the time frame is shifting in verses 14 and 20. Now we're reading about not the warnings that come uh, before Jesus returns, but now we're reading about the judgment that comes when Jesus returns. That's what we read about in verse 14, the arrival of Jesus himself. And what are the judgments that we read about? There's some disagreement here it definitely seems like there are two different things that are being described. The first one's in 14 through 16, and the second is in verses 17 through 20. And some believe that this is two descriptions of uh, the same judgment for the same group of people. Others believe that these two are descriptions of judgment that's happening to two different people. I'm going to suggest to you that it's the latter. Hopefully I'll show you that from the text. The easier one to see is in verses 17 through 20. There we read some really difficult things to read and to hear. We get a gruesome and a graphic picture. Drawing from Isaiah chapter 63, John gives us a picture of God's judgment against the wicked. And he uses this this picture, this metaphor of grapes being pressed into a wine press. Now, this is not some kind of a literal explanation of what's going to happen when Jesus returns to those who are not Christians. As if there's some kind of cosmic wine press that they'll be put into and God's feet being stepping down on them. That's, that's not a literal thing that's happening. John is, is using something that was a very ancient and regular practice for the people that would have been reading this of making wine. Grapes would be gathered by the cluster and they would be put into a vat. And then people would stand on the top and they would step down on the grapes and they would be pressed into the vat, into the the grid of the vat. And the, 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 uh, the skin of the grapes would be left on the vat and the juice would be pressed down into a bottom compartment, usually through some kind of a funnel. As the juice was pressed out, it would be red, crimson in color, and it would look like blood that was flowing. And here's the picture that John is getting in verses 14 and 20. When Jesus returns, those who are not in a relationship with him, and how do we know that? Because we read that they are outside the city. Which is one way of the Bible saying that these are people that are outside of a covenant relationship with God. When Jesus returns, those who are not in a relationship with Jesus will be gathered together. And the righteousness and the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God will press down upon them and they will be crushed under it. It doesn't get much more graphic than verse 20. Here John sees blood flowing for 1600 stadia and as high as a horse's bridle. 1600 stadia. It's not a measurement that we use today. It meant uh, the equivalent of about 184 miles. Now, that's significant because that's about the distance from the northern border of Israel to the southern border of Israel. You see what's being said here. The entirety of Israel will be covered with the blood. And not just ankle deep, but deep enough for a horse to have to swim through it. This is all symbolism to say that the judgment on those who are not God's people will be universal and complete. It's difficult to read, it's difficult to hear, it's difficult to take in, but it's part of the vision that John is receiving, and it's true, and we must hear it. But the good news is that there's another judgment that's taking place in these verses. The judgment of the wicked is verses 17 through 20, but I would suggest to you that what we're reading in verses 14 and 16 is another judgment of another group of people. It's different from the harvest of the grapes that we're reading in verses 17 through 20. This is the harvest of wheat. Now, where do I get that from? Well, if you look at verse 15, we read there that the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It's that word ripe. It's the Greek word... Serrano. It was a word that was very specific, and it was used to describe wheat that had dried out and was ready for harvest. It's a different word that's used for the grapes being ripe in verse 18. We're talking about a different harvest, not the harvest of ripe grapes. We're talking about the, the, the harvest of ripe wheat. And in the Bible, wheat is often used to describe who? God's people. We think of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Here is the picture in verses 14 through 16. It is the picture of a harvest. It is the picture of a judgment. Not of the wicked. Not of those who are not in a relationship with God. Not of those who are outside the city. It is a picture of the judgment of God's people. And notice, who is it that comes to gather God's people? In verse 14. I think it's pretty obvious. That's Jesus himself. We read in verse 14, John says, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. One like the son of man over 80 or about 80 times in the gospel. Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. And this son of man is seated on a white cloud and it brings to us the image that we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament of God's presence and his glory descending upon his people in the form of a cloud. We saw it in the Old Testament temple as the glory cloud would descend upon the temple. We've seen it in the New Testament with the transfiguration as Jesus goes up onto the mountain and there He is transfigured into the glory of God and we're told that a white cloud that is bleached, that is whiter than any bleach can make it descends upon Jesus. We can think of His ascension as Jesus is caught up in a cloud and rises back up into heaven. This One who is... Like the son of man and is seated on a white cloud. It also has a golden crown on his head. There are different Greek words that can be used for the word crown. The one here is the word Stephanos. Which literally means the victor's crown or wreath that was given to an Olympic athlete when they won the event. This is, this is the son of man. Who comes in the glory and the power of, Jesus, of, of, of God himself. And he wears the victor's crown. He has victory. And notice what he has in his hand, a sharp sickle, the tool of gathering and judging. Now, what I want you to look for here is the judgment on God's people. What is God's judgment on his people in verses 14 to 16? We don't see the winepress of God's wrath here. Why not? Well, we know why not. The prophet Isaiah told us why not? And Isaiah 53, speaking in a foreshadowing way about Jesus Christ, says, "Surely he that is Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows: yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities; upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace; with his wounds we are healed." all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We also know from Matthew chapter 26 as Jesus was out in the garden of Gethsemane praying right before he was to go to the cross, he prays to his father and he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup that he's talking about? It is the cup of the wrath of God that is poured out. It is the cup that is being referred to here in Revelation 14 verses 17 through 20 that unbelievers are pressed against. On the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and He drank it dry. He was pressed. He was crushed On the winepress of God's wrath and justice for us. He was taken outside the city and his blood flowed. And so much of his blood flowed and was shed that it covers every single one of his people. Because Jesus was crushed in the winepress of God's judgment and wrath, we aren't. There is judgment here for God's people. There is a declaration. There is a verdict that has been given. And the verdict is not guilty, righteous, accepted, and dearly loved. And if you're in Christ this morning, then that leads you to have an incredible hope. For God's grace is real. Did you pick up what God's people are called back in verse 12? here is a call for the endurance of the saints it's a term that that means called out ones ones who are set apart ones who are holy it's the language of status christians are sinners And yet, because Jesus Christ took the cup of the wrath of God and drank it for us, we are declared, we are judged innocent. We are judged forgiven. We are judged holy. We are given the status of saints. You are declared righteous and justified. And if you are in Christ this morning, this is who you are. It doesn't depend on how you feel. It doesn't depend on how your week has gone. It is true of you. You are a saint because of Jesus Christ. And isn't that what they say at the end of verse 12? They are saints because they have their faith in Jesus. We believe and we trust in Jesus, not in, our, in ourselves. We keep the eyes of our faith on him. We get what Jesus earned by being connected and united to Jesus by faith. Our hope and our trust is not in ourselves. It's not in our record of good works, but it's in Jesus and his life of perfect love and obedience to his father. And that it's credited to us simply by having faith in the son of man, Jesus Christ. This is, this is God's grace and it is real. You are a saint. You have been given the status of saint because of Jesus Christ. There's great hope here, not only because of who we are in Christ, but also because the end result of what we receive is so much more than anything we would ever have to be called to go through in this world. We see that in verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Christians should be filled with an incredible hope because no matter what we have to go through in this life, the end result is worth it. When we die as Christians, when we die in the Lord, there is blessing and rest, verse 13 says. This is in direct contrast to what happens when unbelievers die. For them, there is no blessing. For them, there is no rest ever. But for those who are in Christ, we rest from our labors. That word labors is a Greek word that means wearisome, uneasy, difficult and painful striving. What is it that we strive for in this life? We strive and lean against our sin. We work and we toil to make use of the means of grace. We have relational difficulties and strain and disappointments. We carry the wearying burdens of life in this world, disease and sadness, loneliness, isolation, war, death. But the good news that which would fill us with hope today is that for those who persevere to the end in their faith in Christ, the end result is rest from those things. Rest from our wearying rest and blessing. And notice, too, at the end of verse 13, we also have incredible hope because we know that our good deeds will bear fruit and bring God glory. That's what we read at the end of verse 13. Their deeds will follow them into heaven. Isn't that an interesting thing for us to be encouraged about? We are saved by grace. We're saved apart from good works. But God still commands us to do good works, which he prepares for us to do. And one of the beautiful things about heaven is that the good works that God gives us to do and enables us to do will follow us there. Notice they don't go before us. They don't open the door of heaven for us. Christ alone does that. But they follow us. The good works that we do in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good works that we do in gratitude for God's grace to us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit have eternal significance. One last thing I want you to see from verse 12, and that is that our endurance is needed. All of this, all of this in Revelation 14, the warnings and the picture of the judgment that comes at the second coming, the hope that Christians have in Christ, all of that is meant to make us endure, to give us the strength to persevere. That's what he says in verse 12. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Endurance means patient perseverance, particularly in the face of suffering and trials. That is, as God's people, we should anticipate and expect difficult life circumstances and trials and suffering and perhaps even persecution. And as we think about that and we think about the wonders of God's grace and mercy to us and making us his saints and the wonder of what the blessing and the rest that we will get to experience at the end of this world... And we should patiently and perseveringly endure through whatever it is we're called to endure in this world. Because our hope is in God's grace and the end result is worth it. It would be wrong for me not to say one final word to those who might be here this morning who are not Christians. Who are not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to hear this morning God's patient and loving warning today. It's not too late. Acknowledge your need for Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Repent of your sins and turn to him. It is not too late. But the message of Revelation 14 is clear. The time is short. There are no guarantees for how long you will live on this earth or for when Jesus will come back. We got kind of a graphic demonstration of that, a startling demonstration of that a week ago, did we not? Last Sunday morning at 9.06 a.m., a a helicopter took off in the city of Los Angeles with the basketball superstar Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other passengers. At 9.46, the helicopter slammed into a hillside just north of Los Angeles, and all nine people died instantly. At 9.46 a.m. last Sunday, Kobe Bryant stood face to face with his Creator. And if he had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that moment was the beginning of rest and eternal blessing. But if he did not, then that moment was the beginning of of an eternal process of being crushed in the winepress of God's judgment. The good news for those of you here today is that day has not yet come for you. It's not too late. There is still time. Today is the day. Embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive the hope of God's grace and His eternal life in your heavenly rest. Let's pray together. Father, hard things from Your Word today, hard things for us to read, hard things for us to hear, hard things to be preached. So I pray, Lord, that You would open our hearts. Help us not to be turned away. Help us not to be turned away by your from Your grace or Your love for us. But instead, Father, remind us of this wonderful hope that is ours in Christ. And as a result, may we once again... Find the joy that is only to be found in you. And even as we come to this table, Father, we pray for strength, that as we go out and as we seek to live as your people, that you would enable us to do it for your glory's sake alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after those events took place, we read that they sang a hymn together and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus went to pray to his Father. And we read just a few verses later, going a little farther away, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We come to this table and we have this vivid depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ taking the cup of God's wrath and drinking it dry for us. And because he did that, for all who have faith in him... We get to drink from the cup of eternal life. (laughs) His blood that is poured out for us. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. It's what we celebrate. It's what we remember. It's what we put our faith in anew as we come to this table. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've publicly professed your faith at Trinity. or another church that believes that the Bible is God's word. And that uh, the gospel is by grace alone and Christ alone. Then eat and drink. Knowing that because Jesus has taken the wrath of God full for you, you get His life, eternal life. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we would ask you to allow the elements to pass you by. Paul says that if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, coming as not a believer in Christ, not having made a public profession of Christ, then we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. So if that's not you this morning, then allow the elements to pass you by. But if you're here this morning and in Christ, publicly profess your faith and eat and drink and be reminded of this wonderful gospel of grace and the hope of eternal life that is ours. Let's pause for just a moment and thank Him for giving us this means of grace. Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper, this table, this means of grace by which You remind us of the wonder of how the Lord Jesus Christ Took all of your wrath and justice that we deserve to bear on our own, and he put it upon himself, taking it all in, paying for it with his life of perfect love and obedience, so that we could be called your saints. I pray that you would overwhelm us with your grace this morning, overwhelm us with a sense of how much you love us. And as we eat and drink and we remember, we also pray for your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, that as we go out, We would have great joy in living for you this week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.